0: i o nine presents the geek's guide
1: to the galaxy and here are your hosts john joseph adams and david barr kirtley
2: hello and welcome to episode 33 of geek's guide to the galaxy
1: Hi, this is John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and Fantasy Magazine and several anthologies, uh, such as Brave New Worlds, which is all about dystopian fiction, which is the subject of this episode.
2: And I'm David barr Kurtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including The Skull Face Boy, which originally appeared on Gothic.net and which was reprinted in John's zombie anthology The Living Dead. The story also appeared as episode 94 of the Pseudopod podcast. And today on the show, we'll be interviewing Cameron Strocker, He's a lawyer specializing in First Amendment litigation, and he teaches at New York Law School. He also attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop and is the author of the books Dinner with Dad, How I Found My Way Back to the Family Table, and Double Billing, A Young Lawyer's Tale of Greed, Sex, Lies, and the Pursuit of a Swivel Chair. His latest book, The Water Wars, is a young adult novel about a dystopian future in which water is a scarce commodity. Okay, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Cameron Stroker. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first of all, uh, tell us about your new novel, Water Wars. Uh, what's it about?
0: Well, The Water Wars is a young adult novel. It's about a near-future world in which uh, access to fresh water is uh, limited and controlled by just a few governments and corporations. And there's this mysterious boy named Kai who comes onto the scene and seems to have uh, some sort of special access to fresh water and then he disappears and uh, a friend of a friend he meets this girl Vera and her brother Will have to find him
2: so why did you decide to write about water scarcity
0: well i think i started generally with the idea of wanting to write a young adult novel and specifically wanting to write something dystopian um i my son was 12 years old at the time and was just sort of beginning to read uh that kind of fiction. And I always have liked dystopian fiction. Uh even, you know, when I was his age, that was the sort of stuff I read. Uh and I wanted to write something for him and something that he that he would enjoy and that we could sort of read and work together. Uh and so, you know, dystopian the the, the whole dystopian genre sort of begins with the premise of, you know, what's going on in our world now that in the near future could really get out of hand. And to me, one of the clearest Examples or warnings is is water and water scarcity, uh, and so I just began to imagine a world, not unlike our own, in which fresh water is very limited, uh, and very hard to find.
1: Uh, what kind of research did you have to do?
0: Oh, well, I did a lot of uh, reading. There's uh, there's a lot um, of scientific stuff that's been written about water scarcity. Um, you know, a lot of sort of policy groups, and there are a number of nonprofits uh, who have very good websites. Uh, so I scoured the Internet and read a lot of material online. There, uh, as I said, there are a couple good books, a book called Not One More Drop, um, about water scarcities. There's some books about uh, political instability and water scarcity. Uh, so that that was the sort of stuff that I read.
2: You know, uh, listening to interviews with you, I heard you talk about fossil aquifers. I mean, could you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's something that a lot of people don't know that much about.
0: This is really where most of our fresh water comes from. You know, people actually think of reservoirs, these big kind of basins filled with water. But in fact, you know, most water um, sits below the surface in uh, areas where the ground is rocky or loose. And it is just there in the water table. You know, lots of times you hear people talking about oh the water tables is really high here, the water table's really low. And what they're really talking about is there's one there's an aquifer below the the dirt and the soil that we're in, uh, and the aquifer is basically a kind of wet, loamy, uh, rocky substance that holds fresh water. And, and we can suck it out and we do suck it out to, to provide drinking water and all sorts of other stuff in the same way that oil is sucked out, uh, from rock. Uh, the trouble is, is that aquifers only get replenished at a certain rate uh, they get replenished you know when when it rains and the water seeps into the ground when rivers come down and the water seeps off the side uh, and it's actually quite a slow process uh, the water gets filtered as it goes through the uh, ground and that's what makes it drinkable but it happens at a very slow rate and the problem is as, as cities and and urban areas have gotten larger the rate at which we take the water out of the aquifers far exceeds the rate at which it naturally falls back in. So all around the world, these aquifers are dropping or becoming polluted or poisoned because when they get too low, uh, salt water seeps into them and uh, we're losing one of our main sources of fresh water that way.
2: I just, There was uh, just a Thomas Friedman column where he said that Yemen might be the first country to actually run out of water. Have you uh, heard anything about that?
0: That wouldn't surprise me. Those countries you know, where where there's not a lot of water to begin with uh, and then, where industry and population growth have really taken off, they have really far outstripped their their natural water um, uh, resources. You know, Yemen that that would strike me as a perfect place for it. I mean, Yemen is a you know mostly a desert country, so they probably have limited water to begin with. And once a country gets industrial, that's when they use the most water, and that's actually the biggest concern. You know, as India and China become more industrialized and more so-called first world countries, the, the rate of their water consumption drastically increases. You know, right now, I think it's something like the average person in India or China uses only 40 or 50 gallons of water a day, whereas in the United States, we use about 150 gallons of water a day. Now, of course, you know, we're not drinking that water, all of it, but we're using it, you know, for industry, for manufacturing, for irrigation. And again, the more industrial country becomes, the more and the greater rate of its water consumption.
1: Is there anything people can do to see that our water supply is used more wisely?
0: Oh, sure. Lots of things. You know, just the other night, I mean, gosh, my wife was taking like a 40 minute shower (laughs) upstairs. And I, you know, now that I've written this book and I'm so conscious of these things, I'm just thinking to myself, do you know how much water is going down the drain? Uh, you know, instead of being preserved, the difference between taking a five minute shower, which will get you perfectly clean. Uh, and a 40 minute shower which is really just a luxury is is enormous and if you multiply that by you know 300 million people in the United States 6 billion people across the world you you can see how tons of water is just you know wasted un, unnecessarily i mean other things like you know our our lawns the fact that we are obsessed with having these green lawns even in these desert Climates I mean, I was just out in Arizona doing some readings from my book, and it's amazing to see these expanses of green lawns, you know not just golf courses but people's homes and you know this is this is a an area that maybe gets two or three inches of water a year, hmm. and yet you know everybody has this uh this this sense of entitlement that, you know, we, we can turn the tap on and, and turn our desert into a green oasis, even though that's not the way, um, you know, the world was, was, was made.
1: Uh, so how did you go from having the basic idea of this dystopian future world to the actual details of the characters and plot?
0: Yeah, that's a good question and of course that's really the that's really the main issue when you're writing any book you know you can have the idea but the question is always how are you gonna how are you gonna tell that story how are you gonna make it interesting um... you know for me it really started with a kind of image of um this boy kai i I didn't know he was kai at the time but um i do i do a lot i like to run i do a lot of jogging and often sort of ideas and images come to me and i was out running and i just sort of had this image of this boy standing in the middle of a road it was a dusty dry road and he was standing there and he had a half a cup of water in his hand and he just kind of tipped the water over and spilled it into the dirt, you know, and he did it in this way. It was kind of arrogant. It was kind of like he didn't care. Um it was just it was an interesting sort of gesture and because the idea of water scarcity was sort of gestating at that time and i knew i wanted to write something about it i realized that that boy that was the sort of kernel of the story there you know who was that boy why was he standing there in the road why was he spilling that water like it didn't matter uh you know what was his story what was his mystery and um you know i began to realize that that you know he was kai uh, he had this mysterious access to water for him spilling water in a in a in a dry world didn't really mean very much and uh you know the act of spilling was observed by this girl vera who became the protagonist who you know that basically had the same sort of thoughts i did which was you know who is this guy why is he doing this what's going on and in her quest to sort of learn more about him that was how the story that was the kernel of the story and 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 you know, from there, everything kind of expanded.
2: Okay, so, you know, Water Wars has blurbs by some pretty big names, including Justin Cronin and Lori David, the producer of An Inconvenient Truth. I was wondering, just have you had any direct contact with any of those folks, or, or did your publisher handle all of that? Um,
0: but actually, both Lori and Justin were very nice. Um, I got their emails through intermediaries and, you know, queried them, sent them, The book, and uh, they they were very generous. I mean, I I don't know if you've had experience getting blurbs or trying to get blurbs. (laughs) It can be a really humbling experience. You know, you try to reach out to people, and everybody's so busy, and you know, it's hard. Um, But they were both really pretty amazing about it.
2: So, uh, who are some of your favorite science fiction authors that inspired you?
0: You know, just because I read this book when I was a kid, I'm rereading the books by John Christopher, the Tripods trilogy. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have ever read that book. Yeah, I know. I love that, those books. Yeah, those are great books. And I had forgotten. I read them when I was about 10 or 12 years old. Um, I've always loved Frank Herbert. I've, I have I love Dune, although I thought the later books got kind of carried away. Um, I love William Gibson. Um, I've, you know, love almost all of his stuff. As a kid, I read tons of Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. Um, Ray Bradbury is great. Um, you know, I love The Golden Compass. I think you'd think of that as science fiction. I read a lot of, like, sort of young adult sci-fi now just because that's, you know, I'm writing it more and my son is interested in it, and so I just kind of gravitate to that. I really like John 12 Hawk's book, um, The Traveler. You know, I tend to like books with sort of you know dystopian, anti-government, uh, dark kind of themes. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I like.
1: Uh, several movies have depicted futures in which water is scarce, uh, Ice Pirates, Tank Girl, and The Book of Eli, to name a few. What do you think of the way that movies have dealt with the theme of water scarcity?
0: Yeah, you know, I remember Tank Girl. I'd actually forgotten that Tank Girl was a water that had was a, was a movie that had a similar theme until uh, a couple people on the, on on the Facebook page for Water Wars mentioned it. I actually really liked Tank Girl, and I liked Laurie Petty a lot too. Um, I, I remember liking the movie. It's been a long time since I'd, I'd seen it. I I haven't seen the other two, but um, you know, the idea of some of some kind of material scarcity even if it's not necessarily water is common to a lot of sci-fi movies you know even movies like you know mad max you think of mad max in that sort of desert environment i mean he needs gasoline but you can't imagine he's drinking much water there either um of course you know then you've got the movies on the other side like uh water right where there's nothing but water
1: yeah i was actually going to bring up Waterworld. world i was going to say um you know, uh, given that Waterworld was one of the uh, biggest flops in uh, movie history, and um, and yet it's kind of the opposite of your book in terms of the amount of water. So if uh, they made a movie out of your book, can we assume then that it would be one of the biggest hits in movie history just because you of the know. transit property of less water in the movie <laughs> equals more more box office. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's yes. fixed but
0: or not. I, I I really hope so. And you know, when I first was writing this book, and I told people what I was writing the book about, they would say to me, "Oh, that's Waterworld," and I would say, "No, no, it's the exact <laughs> opposite of Waterworld."
2: Has there been any sort of a film interest or a TV, anything like that?
0: You know, people contact me about it and want to know if the rights are available and want to see copies, but you know, nobody's written me a check yet. So <laughs> until that happens, I'm. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not buying anything.
2: Okay, so uh, you know you attended the Iowa Writers' Workshop. I was just wondering, you know, were any of the students there writing science fiction, and was anyone on the faculty uh, knowledgeable about science fiction?
0: I think the short answer is no. Um, the long answer is I think there probably were some closet uh, sci-fi writers. You know, the guy who wrote the screenplay for I Robot, um, and I'm blanking on his name now. Is that Akiva, Akiva Goldsman? No, not Akiva, not Akiva. Um, Akiva may have directed it. I'm not sure if he also got a screenwriting credit. Jeff Vintner, is that possible? I forget. Yeah, is Jeff that Vintner, IMDB? that sounds right. Jeff Vintner, yes, okay. Yeah. What a memory I have. <laughs> he was a year, he was a year behind me at Iowa. And I remember that he kind of was into sort of sci-fi and cartoons, comic book stuff. I think people thought he was a little weird because he you know that was the sort of stuff he'd like to do and you know I never heard from him, never heard of him uh, and suddenly I was watching iRobot and then he resurfaced but he he's the only one I can think of um, although I suspect that there were a lot of people who you know were secret sci-fi fans.
1: Uh, so your day job is as a media lawyer. Uh, what kind of cases do you handle?
0: I do a lot of libel and privacy uh, cases. I, I do what's called pre-publication review for magazines and television shows. So, uh, for example, if you've ever seen the reality television show Dog the Bounty Hunter, hmm. um, the producers are my clients. I'll you know I'll watch the shows before they get finalized. I'll advise them about risks. Um, I do the same for Star Magazine. Uh Al Roker has a production company. I do the same for him. And then, you know, God forbid if they get sued, I, you know, I usually handle and litigate the lawsuits as well.
2: I mean, what would be an example of something like if you're watching Dog Dog the Bounty Hunter, like what's something that might happen where you're where you're like a better bank make a note about that?
0: <laughs> well, you know, you worry mo- most obviously. You worry about defamatory statements. You know, if 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 Dog were to say, I mean, he does say, uh, this guy's wanted for uh, attempted murder you want to be sure that that's really correct because mm-hmm. if he's not wanted for attempted murder or it's some innocent guy who he's mistakenly identified um you know the guy's got a libel claim against the the producers and against Dog now you know um we will carefully look at the records and you know Dog knows what he's talking about he's got a warrant for the guy's arrest so you know usually we're fine but you know that's the sort of stuff we'll, I keep an eye out for um, you know, copyrighted music stuff happens a lot too. Like they'll 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 play a track of a song in the background, and I'll remind them, hey, you know, even if you've got a song in the background, you actually need to license it unless you know you're using it very incidentally. Um, so things like that.
2: Can you think of any like really strange or noteworthy cases that you've worked on?
0: Well, I'll tell you something. Right now, I'm actually defending Star Magazine against a $50 million lawsuit uh, brought by Katie Holmes uh, that was just filed yesterday. So that's kind of uh, preoccupying me, let me say.
1: Uh, So actually, you know, you're the third lawyer we've had on the show um, who's also a writer. Uh, I'm wondering, is that a day job you'd recommend to writers for some reason?
0: Yeah, I might. You know, it's interesting. I think that lawyers a lot of lawyers are frustrated writers and a lot of them are probably like me. I mean, I I, I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I wrote through college um, and then, you know, my parents said to me, go get a real job. And I was too, you know, too scared to sort of go out and be a freelancer on my own. So I did. I went to law school, but, you know, I kept writing and I always sort of came back to it. You know, after law school, I I left the practice of law, went to Iowa, got a master's, you know, spent four years out there writing, um, but then came back to New York and, and practiced law again. Uh, law, I, law has been a, a good profession for me because it's actually, you know, despite its reputation of being like a, a place that eats its young, uh, as you get older, you actually have sort of more flexibility and, and more ability to, work part time and, you know, make your own hours. And if you're willing to, you know, not be the richest lawyer in the world, you, you can have a lot of flexibility. So, you know, I think it, it's it's two things. It's one, law attracts people who like to write. And then two, law actually can provide you to some extent with financial, um a little more financial freedom to, to pursue writing than, you know, another job might.
2: I saw that you wrote a novel called Double Billing, which it looks like a sort of an expose of the legal profession. i mean what are like, yeah, what are yeah. what are some of the problems you see with the law and is there anything that can be done about them?
0: Well, double billing is actually a memoir. It's based on my experiences at a couple different law firms, and you know, I fictionalized some things just because I, I didn't want to get sued. But I, the stories in it are really true. I mean, I describe my experiences working on these really big cases and being locked up in a warehouse all weekend long, looking through documents. You know, it was a, it was a pretty miserable life. And I, um, I taught law students until pretty recently as well, and you know i would hear these horror stories about young associates um being told on a friday afternoon to go get themselves a suit because they're going to you know to some city in the midwest for the weekend where they're going to have to review documents and you know they really are kind of treated as very very high-paid high-paid wage slaves um and you know there's a lot of unhappiness among young lawyers it's kind of ironic because especially at the big corporate firms they make so much money and yet you know, that money is not making them happy, and I think a lot of them really question their decisions to go that route. So my book, Double Billing, was about my own three years kind of following that same path before I got out and got a job, actually my first really good job at the CBS as a media lawyer, and, you know, things got better from there. But those those beginning years are, are tough ones.
2: Um, okay, so, uh, you know, on a recent episode, one thing that John and I were talking about was uh – I found this uh superhero role playing book I used to I used to play and there's a note at the beginning and the guy says, you know, the word superhero is a trademark of Marvel and DC and so I can't use it in this book. And we were just wondering is is that actually, you know, apparently they do have a trademark, but is that true that you just can't use the word at all in the entire book if there's a trademark on it and like what are some of the issues with that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I I would be I mean, look, people try to trademark everything and and sometimes they do, but The trademark has to be very specific and limited to a particular type of use. Um, I'd be surprised if the word superhero could be trademarked such that nobody else can use it. Um, The question that a court's always going to ask is, you know, is it substantially – is it confusing to the public? Will the public think that, you know, if you're using the term superhero, that you must be somehow sponsored or endorsed or connected with Marvel? And I really don't – in that particular situation, I really don't think that's the case. I, I was involved in a case at CBS where Don Imus got a letter from the Chrysler Corporation because he had used the word Jeep. In his book, and he'd used it without the um, you know, the registered trademark symbol, and Chrysler sent him a letter telling him that Jeep was a registered trademark, and that if he was going to use it, he needed to identify it as such. And and he went off on on the air. It actually led to a libel suit because he on the air he he quite <laughs> graphically described how he felt about the letter writer. Um, but you know, I think that that was a silly kind of letter. I don't think the the word Jeep is too generic really to be trademarked. I mean somebody may have a trademark in it but good good luck trying to protect it.
1: Uh, So you also wrote a book called uh, Dinner with Dad about being a parent. How has uh, being a parent affected your writing and how do you balance the two?
0: (laughs) Well it's made the time to write a lot more limited. (laughs) Um, But that book was kind of born out of um, feeling like I was getting disconnected from my kids and my family because I was, I really was kind of burning the candle at many different ends. I was working several different jobs. I had a two hour commute to Manhattan and uh, I just realized, you know, my kids are getting older quickly and they're going to be gone before I know it. And I just, I really wanted a, a way to force myself to get home and be home. And so I, I just decided I would do this project where I would be at home and, cooked dinner for my kids and my wife, you know, at, at least uh, four or five days a week. And that just turned in, it turned into that book, which I think was a great experience, not not just the writing of the book, but actually the experience of doing it. Um, I have to say it's kind of a thrill to have kids and go back and read the stuff that you read as a kid that that they are now reading. You know, like my son was reading Catcher in the Rye and he was reading To Kill a Mockingbird and I gave him some of the old Kurt Vonnegut books that I used to like and it's just great to kind of rediscover those books as an adult and realize, you know, how great they were and, you know, maybe you read Catcher in the Rye when you were 16, but, you know, you really should go back and read it when you're 40 because you'll have a completely different perspective on it.
2: I guess, you know, for for decades now, I've heard people say that e-books will never catch on because people are just too attached to the smell and feel of paper. Uh, but in, in, in an interview, I heard you say that your daughter is actually more comfortable with an e-reader. Could you talk about that?
0: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, that's an amazing thing. My son um, has always been a pretty good reader, but my daughter, who's actually a pretty academic kid, you know, she does well in school, but she does not like to read. And I don't know. I just, you know, she was talking about a Kindle, and so I said, "Would you like the Kindle?" And she said, "Yes." And the first thing she did was she read about eight books in five days on the Kindle. And, I, you know, that really, I think there's just a different way of absorbing literature and books that the new generation is more comfortable with, you know, the screen for them. I mean, maybe not for everybody, but the screen for them is just the way of uh, the way that information gets processed, you know, the same way that like when I was in college, we had to make the transition from writing on a yellow pad to writing on a computer. They're now making it from reading in a you know, a physical form to reading on a screen, and I think they're just much more comfortable with the screen.
1: Uh, So you talked about, uh, you talked a little bit about this earlier, but uh, what do you, what do you make of the fact that so much young adult science fiction these days is so apprehensive about the future?
0: I think that's, we live in a kind of an apprehensive time. You know, I think you, you'd have to sort of go back to, I think we lived, I, I think there was a similar feeling, you know, sort of like, in the early fifties where a lot of when a lot of good science fiction was written because people were really worried about the world. They were worried about nuclear annihilation. They were worried about, you know, the beginnings of the Cold War. And I think a lot of those concerns were manifested in fiction and particularly in science fiction. And, you know, gosh, now in the wake of, you know, September eleventh and all the upheavals uh that are happening, uh, you know, in the Middle East and uh across the, the rest of the world, I, I think People and especially young people are apprehensive about what, what the future will bring, and I, I you know, I, I think they want to read, and and people want to write about, uh, you know, scary plausible scenarios, both as a way of kind of maybe exorcising those demons, but also as a way of you know sending out the warning signals.
2: Have you have you read any of the other sort of dystopian YA novels that have come out recently, and sort of what did you think of them?
0: Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I love The Hunger Games, although I didn't like the third one, but I, I, I did like those books. Um, I've read the Uglies and Pretties trilogy, which I've really liked. Um, and like I say, I mean, the Tripods trilogy, The White Mountains, I mean, that's, you know, again, great young adult, uh, dystopian fiction. Um, you know, Feed actually is one of my favorite books. Have you read Feed by M.T. Anderson? that that's a great book. That's like a future world in which uh basically like the internet is almost sort of implanted in people's brains and they get these advertising messages fed right across their brains. Um, really, really cool. um like i say i try to I try to read uh a lot of y a and I try to read a lot of dystopian stuff, so when I hear about it, I read it. If you've got any good suggestions, I'd be happy to uh pick up a few books.
1: Uh, yeah, I was going to mention uh, Shipbreaker by Paolo Bacigalupi. Um, you know, Shipbreaker era. It it, uh, it was a finalist for the National Book Award or something like that. And you know, um, yeah, it just won the oh, it won the Prince Award, is what it won. It won that. And, uh, you know, and he has an adult adult novel called The Wind-Up Girl, which is also dystopian, and uh, it won, like, every award, like, with the Hugo the Nebula and all that. So, um, you know, he's definitely somebody to look at, too, but uh, although his his adult book is definitely an adult, it's not (laughs) for younger readers. It's pretty brutal. Really?
0: Um, Yeah. yeah, You know, uh, that's so funny because, actually, I have a a librarian friend or (laughs) – uh here in westport who I, re- I read at the library and she also recommended shipbreaker and actually it's on hold for me now at the oh. at the westport public library i need to go pick it up hmm. and i'm looking forward to reading it
1: uh, okay uh so are there any other new or upcoming projects you'd like to mention that we didn't talk about
0: well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm working on two things right now. One is an adult, uh, nonfiction book. It's about, uh, the, the running boom in the 1970s. So I'm kind of writing about, you know, this period in U.S. history when, when running was kind of taking off and really popular and some of my boyhood idols like Bill Rogers and Frank Shorter and Alberto Salazar were kind of, you know, the kings of the road and that, that's been a lot of fun. I'm kind of about halfway through that. And then I've sort of been tinkering around with um another book that i'm calling 91 right now it's another ya book that's uh it's really about uh, the end of the universe <laughs> so just <laughs> taking taking on a very big theme you know it's, it's about uh it, you know it's about the nature of time and and matter and uh the end of the universe uh
2: is, are you considering a sequel to uh, water wars i thought i heard maybe something about that
0: yeah i mean i am i definitely am you know a lot of this stuff is really just a Pure business economic decision. I mean, I'd be happy to write a sequel. I have a couple ideas too for um, both a prequel and a sequel. I mean, I I kind of envision uh, the second book taking place in one of the ruined cities, like New York City, and I I already have a couple characters in mind. But you know, a lot of it is a function of how many copies of the Water Wars they sell and whether they think it's you know worth bringing out a second book and you know whether they want me to write it. So you know I hope they do and I hope the book does well enough that um they'll ask me to um because I'd like to. So we'll see fingers crossed on that.
2: All right well Cameron Stroker thanks so much for joining us on Geese Guides of the Galaxy.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Cameron Strocker for joining us on the show. All right. And so, uh, I mean, the first thing I think we're going to talk about is I have to correct something that was said uh, during the interview. More, more, more specifically, something John said during the interview. But, John, you referred to Waterworld as one of the biggest box office bombs of all time. Mm-hmm. But here's what I found on Wikipedia. Oh, OK. They say, the movie debuted at the box office at number one. Problems encountered during filming led to a massive budget overrun, and it held the dubious distinction of being the most expensive film ever made at the time. Some, some critics dubbed it Fishstar and Kevin's Gate, references to the notorious flops Ishtar and Heaven's Gate. With a budget of $175 million, the film grossed a mere $88 million at the U.S. box office, which seemed to make it the all-time box office bomb. The film, however, did much better overseas, with 176 million at the foreign box office and good VHS and later DVD sales, giving the movie over 100 million dollars in profit.
1: I see. Okay. Well, I apologize to what <laughs> well. well, obviously, what I was remembering was the fact that it was, uh, you know, it was one of the most expensive movies ever made, and it, and it didn't do well domestically. Um, I guess I didn't know about the foreign box office and whatnot.
2: Yeah. No. I mean, not, neither did I. I mean, I, I just, uh, I just came across that. But yeah, certainly everyone remembers Water World as this huge bomb. But uh, so I was kind of, that's why it kind of stuck in my memory when I when I read that. But I because I, I always I feel like Water World gets kind of a bad rap. I mean, I, I haven't seen it since it first came out, but I sort of remember it being sort of an average post-apocalyptic movie. I don't remember it being the worst thing ever.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think it, it gets a little bit of a bad rap, too. I mean, it's it, it's you know, it's not good. But I mean, it's not—it's not as bad as some people make it out to be. I mean, um, there are parts of it that are certainly entertaining, and there's parts of it that are—you know—it does—it does some things that I've never seen in science fiction films before, or certainly hadn't at the time.
2: Mm, I just remember when I when I saw it in the theater, you know, it starts out and there's the the globe—it's the logo of the you know movie studio—and then you know you just see the globe, and you don't even really notice at first, but the water levels are rising, and the oceans are you know submerging all the the land on the on the Earth. Uh, that was kind of a. A cool way to, to start out the movie. I just remember sort of the, the ripple that went through the audience when people noticed that the that the logo was doing that. Yeah, yeah. All right, but so speaking of dystopian fiction, we're gonna start out by talking about John's new anthology, Brave New Worlds, uh, which collects uh, you know, the best uh best of dystopian short stories. So yeah, first of all, why don't we just start out and could you talk about a little bit about just what is dystopian fiction?
1: So I mean, dystopian fiction is basically just a fiction that takes place in, it takes place in an unfavorable society in which to live. Uh, a lot of people sort of think like dystopia is a synonym for post-apocalyptic, but uh, but it's not. And I mean, it's not a synonym for bleak or or just a darkly imagined future. Uh, um, I mean, in the dystopian story, society itself is like the antagonist. And so that that's kind of one of the things that makes it funny to me that people often um, use dystopia as a as a synonym for post-apocalyptic because it's like well. In post-apocalyptic fiction, it's like, well, you've destroyed civilization. You know, it's like you have to have civilization in place in order for there to be a dystopia. You know, um The Lottery by Shirley Jackson is sort of a classic example that you know that's included in the in the anthology. Um, you know, uh uh and of course Brave New World, which the book is named from um named after, uh is is a is a classic example as is 1984.
2: Well, I mean, speaking of the lottery, actually I came across this kind of interesting quote from from Shirley Jackson about that. So she says, uh Of the 300-odd letters that I received that summer, this is the summer that the story was published, I can count only 13 that spoke kindly to me, and they were mostly from friends. Even my mother scolded me, quote, Dad and I did not care at all for your story in The New Yorker, she wrote sternly. It does seem, dear, that this gloomy kind of story is what all you young people think about these days. Why don't you write something to cheer people up? Hmm. So, John, John, why don't you edit an an anthology to cheer people up? What's, What's wrong with you young people these days?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Actually, you know, I'd heard I'd heard that um, that the that the initial reaction to the lottery was all very negative. Um, but uh, well, actually, you know, I mean, you know, if if you want a story, if you want an anthology that that is sort of uh, intended to cheer you up, uh, Yeti Rai actually um, edited an anthology called Shine, um, which is specifically supposed to be uh, utopian or at least positive, uh, maybe not utopian, but like a uh, positive futures uh you know in that in all the stories um so uh, you know in a way kind of uh the opposite of brave new worlds but i mean that's actually one of the interesting things too though speaking of utopias is that um in dystopian fiction the societies that are depicted are often um depicted as utopias uh or at least the the citizens who are living there sometimes think they're they're in utopias whereas like when we're looking at it from the outside we can obviously see oh well this is ac- this is actually a dystopia at least it is to us why do you think that there's so much
2: confusion about what the word dystopia means?
1: Yeah, I mean, like dystopian fiction is kind of hot right now, especially like in YA and uh young in young adult fiction and and so a lot of books are being sort of labeled with dystopian and so I think um I think part of the confusion is just that people sort of latch on to this word that they think is like a hot genre and so they're 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 eager to apply it to whatever is coming out so that because oh well dystopian's hot let's call this dystopian um and without really understanding what it is about the stories that qualifies it to be termed a dystopia and so i think that's part of where the confusion comes in just it's just marketing Mm -hmm. um and uh you know um i think it's just a term that people a lot of people aren't familiar with it's like I mean I think most people know like oh dystopia that's like 1984 Brave New World a Brave New World but but they don't understand what it is about those books that makes it dystopia or makes makes the genre dystopian you know um, it's like they think like oh well it's just like um, it's just like sort of dark science fiction or, or dark um, but I mean so. you
2: can, you can sort of understand why people would sort of get confused and kind of think dystopia and sort of post apocalyptic or massive ecological. Collapse sort of go together because mm-hmm. they go together so often and and so often. Yeah. you know the the massive ecological collapse is what sort of creates the grounds for the dystopian government to to sort of come into existence.
1: Yeah, I mean you know, you know I mean it makes it makes sense that uh, that the two would be conflated and I mean you know obviously you know I did an anthology called Wastelands which is specifically about post apocalyptic fiction and then now I did ba- Brave New Worlds. Um, you know so i've've done, done a lot of thinking about these two things these two and, and they seem very clear there's very clear distinctions in my mind, which you know where the where the line is, but you know I mean obviously though like of my all of my books like wastelands and Brave New Worlds are probably the closest connected you know i mean they're, uh, obviously there's a lot of overlap in the in the readers who read wastelands will a lot of them will also you know want to read um, Brave New Worlds just because of that connection.
2: When, when you when you start putting together a, an anthology like this, you, there, you must have thought like there are a, a certain set of stories that I just absolutely have to have. Like it can't be this kind of anthology I want without these sort of yeah. core stories. Like what what were the core stories?
1: Uh, the Lottery by Shirley Jackson, certainly one. Um, the Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. There's The Pedestrian by Ray Bradbury. Um, Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok Man by Harlan Ellison. Um, the Minority Report by Philip K. Dick. Uh, Harrison Bergeron by uh, Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Um, and uh, so those are uh, uh, those are all like real classics. Uh, I mean, maybe I'd also throw in Billennium by J.G. Ballard. I mean, to me, like Ballard is really uh, an important figure in dystopian fiction. Um, but uh, you know, like I don't I don't know that he was as essential as these others, just because he's not as well known, um, at least not to American audiences. Um, added to those, um, classics there, I would also throw in, uh, you know, Paolo Bacigalupi just like, you know, it's like, well, you clearly have to have a Paolo Bacigalupi story in this book. And, and so I do, I have the history pop squad, but, uh, did I also say the pedestrian by Ray Bradbury? Yeah. Uh, Cause that was,
2: you mentioned been, that.
1: Yeah. Actually, I mean, speaking of Bradbury,
2: I mean, you definitely, you had to have a Bradbury story. Um, sure. But w- weren't you, you were sort of, weren't you sort of going back and forth on which Bradbury to use for a while?
1: Yeah, so I guess it wasn't so much that The Pedestrian had to be in there, but Ray Bradbury had to be. Um, I mean, The Pedestrian's a, a classic story of his, certainly, and it, and it certainly fits the book. And, and so, you know, I did end up using it. Um, I actually, uh, I was debating, or, or I wanted to use um, The Fireman, which is um, was was the first sort of version of Fahrenheit 451 that Ray Bradbury wrote. And, of course, you know, I hadn't mentioned that yet. I mean, I mentioned Brave New World in 1984. I mean, obviously, uh Fahrenheit 451 is the other you know in, in the sort of trifecta of classic <laughs> science fiction dystopian science fiction novels but uh so the fireman was was sort of the original uh version of that story that Bradbury had written and it's a novella um and unfortunately I just I couldn't uh, couldn't get the rights to that um if you want to read it in that original form uh I mean it is it, you know if you've read Fahrenheit 451 I mean to a large extent there's not that it's not really urgent to read it because you've basically read the story already um I mean if you're a scholar um you might wanna read it for you know just to see the differences, to see how it evolved into into the story it became in nineteen in, in, in uh in Fahrenheit four fifty one. But um if you do wanna read it, uh press actually Issued a collection, a short collection of Bradbury's works, um, which includes The Fireman. Um, I'm, I'm not sure of the name of it. It may actually be just, just be called The Fireman. Um, but uh, they recently reissued it, and so um, you know, I, so I couldn't get the rights to, to republish it again. But you know, if, if we had done it um, right after Wastelands, I probably wouldn't have been, I probably would have been able to get it. So I was a little disappointed there. But um, you know, The Pedestrian's also a great story, so I'm just as happy to have it in there. And it's actually it's only like two thousand words, so it's like I was able to include more other stories since i didn't include the firemen so maybe worked out better in the end yeah so uh that that just reminds me um you know kim stanley robinson actually has a a trilogy um it's called the the three Californias trilogy um and uh, so the first book the wild shore is is, is a great uh, post apocalyptic novel and the second novel sort of takes place after that but it's like after they've rebuilt society and but the society they've rebuilt is dystopian and um so and, and so you have that progression from post-apocalyptic society where society is destroyed to society's been rebuilt but you have a dystopian society and then the third book Pacific Edge um depicts a utopia and so you sort of have the the whole entire evolution of 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 those types of societies uh in science fiction and within this one trilogy do, uh I mean out of all the stories do they did
2: do, do the dystopian societies do they all come across as sort of equally bad or, or do, do any of them stand out as being particularly awful
1: pop squad that certainly seems like one of the most horrific to live in uh, maybe not for everyone but uh, certainly for anyone who um, has children uh would be uh you know heavily and heavily affected by it I mean and that that's a story in which they've uh you know so or scientists have discovered a way um to, they've discovered a drug that allows you to your body to remain immortal basically and um in order to keep the world from being overpopulated um it's like you can't just have a child whenever you want and so uh, there's an organization you know to, sort of tasked with um eliminating these children and so the protagonist is 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 on the you know quote unquote pop squad um and it's his job to go you know find uh illicit children and kill them so I mean that's that's pretty dark but uh let's see uh i mean uh, uh, the most horrible to live the, the most horrible to live in one is probably the ones who walk away from Omolas uh, if you're that one kid um but you know i don't want to say i don't want to say more um hmm. because the, that kind of gives away the story but um yeah and I don't know like personally I think like I don't know the minority report um would be pretty awful too just like you know uh, I mean you, you know that's a pretty famous story and, and there's been a movie made about it so a lot of people probably are familiar with it but I mean that's a case where you know um they have precognition um and and the police use it to prevent they they use it they use the precognition to to stop criminals from enacting the crimes before they even actually start to do them you know so it's like if you just think of doing a crime like they'll arrest you you know so like the literal thought police right I mean it's like um the thought of uh you know being able to be arrested for just having a thought is is like you know pretty chilling and and seems about the worst kind of society you could ever live in right yeah just it would be it would be so hard to even conceive of how you could possibly get by in a society like that. I mean, admittedly, there are other stories in which um the day to day life is probably worse, you know, like where you know maybe they're struggling more, but I mean just the the not even being able to have the freedom of thought just seems like you know the hardest thing to probably put up with
2: well, I think that's an interesting issue this this issue of like how many of these dystopian societies that are depicted in fiction are actually workable in real life, you know, could, could people would, would they just not collapse from the amount of stress they would, would put on the populations? Um, like, what what would you say is sort of the connection between dystopia and satire? Because it seems like almost all dystopias I can think of are, are satires in some way or another, that they take some societal trend and exaggerate it to a, a really not really believable extent, but just to make, to make that kind of point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, there's certainly some element of satire in probably most, if not all, dystopian fiction. I mean, um, when you, when you said that, it, it just made me think immediately of RoboCop, um, which is a is a great dystopian movie. I mean, it's uh, you know obviously very satirical, um, and obviously you know sort of doing exactly what you're saying is you know exaggerating trends uh, to in a sort of in a logical extreme.
2: Like to take uh, a story from the book, I mean, like you know you you, you mentioned Kurt Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron. Which is just, I mean, it's just absolutely, I mean, it's a fantastic story, but it's this absolutely ridiculous uh, sure, sure. society where, uh, you know, um, they try, they've try they tried to promote equality by handicapping everybody who's exceptional. So if you're good looking, you have to wear an ugly mask. And if you're strong, you have to wear heavy weights and stuff like that. And I mean, obviously, it's very hard to imagine something like that actually happening. And a lot of these dystopian stories, I mean, they are sort of didactic in a way. They're sort of making a, they have sort of an explicit sort of political message or, or something, you know, when you read commentary online, whenever there's a story that kind of makes a point, uh, there's a certain number of people will complain about, oh, how, you know, the story shouldn't be making a point or it shouldn't be, you know, quote unquote, hitting people over the head with a message and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I don't know, this, this strikes me as a little odd um, that that there's just this presumption that, making a point and doing so clearly and unapologetically is, is bad is sort of by definition bad. Um, When you think about how many stories have done that, that we consider classics. I mean, you know, you just think about stories like, uh, like Candide by Voltaire or uh, a modest proposal by Jonathan Swift or uncle Tom's cabin or Huckleberry Finn. I mean, none of these stories are really subtle about the message (laughs) that they're trying to get across so i just wonder where where does, where does this idea come from that stories shouldn't shouldn't have a message or should at least you know camouflage it to to an extent where you don't really notice it
1: the the frequency which, with people complain about that online and and elsewhere i guess is uh just seems a bit odd to me it's like there, there's no you know it's like i think some people are just really sensitive to that kind of um that kind of thing happening in their fiction and like a lot of people they don't really want to think when they're reading fiction they just want to Sort of turn off their brain and get some enjoy and get some entertainment and you know and and these stories that that dare to you know try to make some point about something might actually make you stop and think about it for a while and, and so that's uh that's sort of disturbing to some people and and that's why they sort of lash out against it and I mean I think that's sad because I mean it sort of discourages people from trying to tell stories that that try to make some sort of point. Um, since you're in The Living Dead, I mean, you know, you've you've watched the reviews uh, with some close, you, you've watched the reviews fairly closely as I have. Um, and, you know, as we, as you know, um, you know, several, uh, several readers have complained about that being too overtly political. Um, it's like, I mean, I think there's, I think there's five stories in the book that have like, you know, overt political messages in them, but um, it's like, really? I mean, that that's enough to like really upset you that much. I mean, you know, that, that any of these stories dare to comment on anything, which is so ironic to complain about in a zombie story, given that George Romero's zombie movies, which launched all of this stuff, all of the whole zombie genre, all of those movies are explicitly, you know, making political statements.
2: The the example, you know, that I've always used sort of on this is that there was this, you know, you mentioned um, Minority Report. There's a, there's this other um, dystopian Philip K. Dick story called The Pre-Persons. And it's, it's this very, I mean, there's nothing subtle about it. It's this very overt anti-abortion story where uh, society has sort of decided that people don't become, you know, that that children shouldn't be considered human beings until they're old enough that they can sort of do algebra, that that's sort of the the point of development at which we're going to start defining the beginning of life. And so children who are younger than that, they kind of have to uh, be careful because there are these kind of like dog catcher-like trucks that sort of go around uh, euthanizing uh, children who are younger than that. And I remember when I first read that story, it just made me so angry it makes you angry, and it makes you think. And I still remember that story so vividly, you know, so many years later. Um, whereas so many other stories, you know, that were probably more subtle and understated, I've com- you know completely forgotten. They never really made much of an impression on me. And I, I've just never. I've I've always been sort of just fascinated by by stories that kind of make you angry and that make you think and that make you want to come up with a response. Um, and I actually did, you know, when I read that read that story, I wrote a response uh, story which, uh, never was published because, uh, shortly after I, <laughs> shortly after I wrote it, I read, uh, James Morrow's story, auspicious eggs, mm-hmm. which actually appears in this book. Um, which is essentially, you know, it's the same basic idea that I had. And I don't, I don't know if he wrote this as a, uh, as a response to the, the pre-persons or not, but it's, uh, it sort of takes the opposite tack that, uh, it's a society in which, uh, the, the sort of, uh, Prioritization of the unborn has reached such extremes that people are just forced to, uh, to not waste any sperm and to just try to produce as many children as, as they can by any means necessary and, uh, and this is all sort of enforced by the, by the authorities and stuff like that. And I think it's just just those stories uh, reading those stories together I think is really a, an interesting exercise and I'm just always really glad that stories like that exist, and I think, you know, the, the right response when a story makes you angry is not to, uh, hate the story or hate the author, but, to to write your own response and, and sort of use art to, uh, advance the conversation.
1: Word. <laughs> uh, I would actually just throw in something there, uh, on the same, sort of on the same topic, but I mean, I mean, you know, speaking of, uh, the rights to, uh, the rights of the unborn and whatnot, um, you know, there's there's actually another story I published called uh, RVs by Adam Troy Castro. Um, it, it's not it's not really dystopian. I mean, it's it's sort of feels somewhat dystopian, but I, I felt like it wasn't dystopian enough to be in the book. But it, it appeared in Lightspeed Magazine, and it's actually up for it's a finalist for the Nebula Award this year. Um, um, well, basically, you know, RVs uh, is sort of a play on the on the word RV, like recreational vehicle. I mean, um, in this, um, you know, basically people have uh retreated literally to the womb and they uh you know they they just they live their entire lives basically inside the womb you know using human hosts as like RVs <laughs> um you know and uh and i don't know it, it's it's really hard to explain but i mean it's really audacious and uh endearing and and i really ha- highly recommend it
2: i mean just when you think about the classics of dystopian literature you know 1984 brave new world fahrenheit 451 these are all things that are sort of they get assigned to everybody in school, whereas, you know, other types of science fiction generally aren't. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you have any thoughts about why dystopian fiction is such an easy uh, sort of easy sell to, to schools?
1: Well, I mean, I think uh, like post-apocalyptic fiction, uh, dystopian fiction is, uh, is is also very easy for sort of lay people, you know, not familiar with the genre to sort of pick up and get what's happening here. It's like, you know, OK, yeah, I see what you're doing there. You know, it's like it's not it's not uh, it's not too hard to grok, as it were. But also because uh, these dystopian books, I mean, they're um, because they're about these real issues like we were talking about. I mean, they really have points to make you know, that provides a lot of discussion for English class. You know what I mean? It's like it gives the teacher a lot to talk about with the students and, and really um, sort of demonstrates the power of prose. You know, I mean, it's like um, not only are you telling this story, you're also communicating all these other things. And, you know, what does the author mean by doing this and this and this? And, you know, um, I mean, the educational um, applications uh, for, for those books are, are, you know, you know, quite vast. Although you know it's interesting you say uh, how how they're assigned to everyone you know what? I I was really um, disappointed in in my schooling like I I I was assigned Fahrenheit 451 and Brave New World but I was never assigned uh, 1984 so I was really surprised and and I, so I didn't read it until later in life and and I mean it's an amazing an amazing book I mean all three are um, although I, I haven't actually read Brave New Worlds um, as an adult I only read it as a teenager. And and Friday night four fifty one was an interesting example. That was an example where I um I was assigned to read it and uh and I and I couldn't really I couldn't really get into it because it was an assignment, you know. Um and we've talked about this on the show before, how uh, how how these assignments often uh ruin books for kids. But um, you know, I later read it as an adult and and, and thought it was brilliant and you know, it's one of my favorite books now, but
2: I mean, have you heard of, has, has your anthology Brave New Worlds, has that been used in schools at all? Or did you, did you think when you were putting it together about whether it would make a good textbook or anything like that?
1: Uh, I mean, I didn't um, I didn't pick any of the stories specifically thinking like this is this will be a textbook. I, I, I did think that, um, you know, once I put it together, that the volume probably probably would be useful as as a text. Um, I mean, mainly because Wastelands and Living Dead um, had both been picked up as textbooks um, in various classes. Uh, I know Joe Haldeman used Wastelands at MIT and and, and there have been other cl- colleges that have used Wastelands as well. Um, and there was um, and several um there are several zombie courses actually out there now and and several of them have used the Living Dead. Um so I mean it was certainly on my mind that that the book might be used as a text and, and the the fact is that there there's like no anthology like this. I mean, strange as it may seem, I mean, you know, all the great history of dystopian fiction, um, all the great works that have been published, I mean, um, as far as I could tell, I mean, no one had ever sort of collected all of the best or attempted to collect all of the best in one volume, you know, and you know, whether or not they actually are the best is obviously up for debate. I mean, they're the, what I thought were the best.
2: When you were talking before about Fahrenheit for 451, I think that was back in uh, the, uh, episode two when we interviewed Paolo Bacigalupi. And I think we had a whole lot to say about our thoughts about schooling mm-hmm. and the role of books in school back, back then. So if anyone's interested in that subject, def- definitely, and you want to know our thoughts on the subject, you know, definitely go check out that episode. Um you know, dystopias. It's not just in the future. Even like things today, you know, societies today, we would probably regard as dystopian societies. Um, and you know, the most obvious example of that would be North Korea. I've heard um, Christopher Hitchens say, you know, he's 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 been to North Korea, and he says, you know, that it's it's really as if someone had read George Orwell's 1984, and said, like, could you actually do this? You know, hmm. could you put this into practice? That that that's sort of what it's like. And of course, you know it's very hard to get information about what's going on in North Korea, um which is why I was so fascinated by this recent documentary that came out. It's called State of Mind, and this sort of documentary crew went into North Korea to cover this uh these uh spectacles that they have there did you Did you get a chance to watch this John no but in North Korea, they have these events called mass games where they're just these enormous just an enormous spectacles with I don't know hundreds or thousands of people all synchronized and running around and there's gymnastics and flag waving and dancing and stuff, you know, throwing balls around. And you just, you just cannot believe the scale of this, you know, so they sort of show what the the living conditions are like. And in the, uh, the sort of apartment, you know, people live in these kind of big apartment buildings and the government propaganda is, you know, piped in uh, all the time. There's really no selection of channels and you can't even turn it, you can sort of turn the volume down, but you can't turn it off. You know, it's never uh, not playing. And so, so it sort of follows these two kind of teenage girls who are just killing themselves, trying to prepare for this this event. And it's a big honor, you know, to be selected to participate in one of these mass games. And uh, injury, you know, they're they're working through injuries. They're working all day long. They're skipping school and stuff. You know, all all just hoping that the the great leader, you know, Kim Jong Il will will show up and, and watch them. And then uh, in the end, you know, they put on 16 days or something of this of this show, and Kim Jong Il never shows up. And the day after it's over, they start preparing for the next one, and nobody knows when the next one will be. And uh, and and the people and the people, you know, they all seem really nice, and they just, you know, they're hanging out with their families and hanging out with their friends and stuff, and they all seem seem very nice. And then just every once in a while, somebody will say something just really bizarre, you know, some, some just sort of weird conspiracy theory type thing that they've been told by the government propaganda. Um, and it's just, it's just, it's really unsettling in those moments when, when these people that you kind of just sort of gotten to like, will just suddenly say something just so out there.
1: Yeah. Well, it certainly does sound like, um, like 1984 come to life. And, and so if you're, if you're interested in more of a discussion about uh, dystopian movies, if you check out uh, episode 18, our, episode featuring uh, eric garcia who did the he wrote the he wrote the book uh that the movie repo man repo man was based on um which is a dystopian movie and um in that episode we uh we talked about uh we talked about um the running man robocop and total recall in in pretty uh in in pretty great detail. So if you if you're interested in hearing more of a discussion about dystopian films, you might want to check out that episode. Um, and uh, just had to mention that because The Running Man is one of my favorite movies as well, and it is great uh, a great great uh, dystopian film.
2: All right, so I think we're just about out of time. Um, if you listened last week, you know that we're now sponsored by Audible.com, uh, which is the largest provider of uh, audiobooks. Uh, you know, John and I have been subscribers for for years and years and. You know, both have listened to hundreds or at least over a hundred uh audiobooks from them. And so how it works is if you uh go to our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on the ads for audible. And if you sign up for a if you sign up for a trial subscription, you'll get a free audiobook. You know, and we'll get some money that'll help support the show. And so like if you want a suggestion for something you should listen to, you could go check out A Game of Thrones by George R.R. R. Martin. That was actually—I think—that was the first uh, first thing I got from Audible. I think that that was what uh, sort of motivated me to to sign up in the first place and um, you know get my subscription and everything is because I really, really wanted that audiobook. And uh, I mean, it's one of my favorite books, and everyone should listen to it anyway. If you haven't listened to our interview with George R. R. Martin, you should check that out. It's episode twenty-two, um, but you should definitely uh, read it or listen to it soon because uh, the Game of Thrones HBO series will be coming out on April seventeenth. So if you want to be ready for that, you can, uh, you know, check check out the book. And if you do it by, uh, you know, going to geeksguideshow.com and click on the audible ad and signing up there, you'll be uh, helping us out a lot.
1: So that's one way you can support the show. Uh, If you would rather uh, you can go to iTunes and you can uh, give us a a review or a rating there. You know, if you want to, if you love the show, you can give us a five star rating. And, uh, and if you want to write a little review, that would help. Also uh, post a comment here on io9 and uh, you know, when io9 sees that there's comments on the post that note that that shows them that you guys love us so um you know if you want to support the show uh you know or if you just want to say that you enjoyed the show you know just drop a comment over on io9 and so that was our episode and uh thanks for listening
0: (laughs) the geek's guide to the galaxy is a production of io9 for this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one.